You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. A few weeks ago, we began a set of sermons called The Bride. It is on the Church of Jesus Christ. And we started a few weeks ago by asking, or really by playing a word association game. And the game went like this. Um, when you hear the word church, what do you think? Like what, what begins to bubble up in your heart when you hear that word? And more importantly on that morning, we try to get a sense of what does God think when he hears that word? Like when, when God hears the word church, what begins to bubble up in his heart? And we looked at Ephesians chapter 5 where Jesus calls his church the bride. And from Ephesians 5, we said this, when God thinks of the word church, his big heart just bursts open with love for the church. He loves the church, as messy as it is, as imperfect as it is, Jesus loves his bride. He loves his bride enough to give his life for the bride. That he would lay down his very life. He would come and live perfectly in our place. Die the death that we deserved on the cross. Risen from the dead on the third day so that there could be a thing called the church. He loves his church enough to co-labor with the church to make it something beautiful. You know, it's interesting. When you just look across this room today, our church is messy, isn't it? I mean, we've all got so much sin and, and all those things embedded into our life. But Jesus is co-laboring right now with our church. And, and Revelation 21 tells us that there is going to be a day where the church becomes beautiful, adorned for her husband. There's going to be a day when every wrinkle is ironed out. When every blemish is covered, that day is coming for the church. Jesus loves the church enough to co-labor with it. He loves the church enough to, to cherish it and delight in it. And that's really what we're praying, that, that over the course of this set of sermons, that God might take his big heart that's bursting with love for the church and plant his big heart into our heart so that we would love the church, so that we could say along with Charles Spurgeon, he's one of my favorite preachers in church history, we could say along with him when he's looking at the imperfect, messy church, that we could say with him, that is the dearest place on earth. That is the dearest place on earth. In, uh, in the second week, last week, we talked about the need uh, to, to marry the church, to, to not just date the church, but to actually marry it by becoming a member of a church. We talked about the three marriages that every Christian should have in their life. If you're a follower of Jesus, there should be a marriage to Jesus that you have. In a very real way, he's going to be our eternal husband. So it should, should be that marriage. There should be the marriage that we have with our family. Like I have a family. I'm, I'm married to Laura, uh, my bride. And in a very real sense, I carry a ring around to let the world know that I'm married to her. It's one of the grids through which I see my life is this marriage to Jesus and this marriage to Laura. But thirdly, if you're a follower of Jesus, God has also called you to be married to a church. That's the third marriage that we have. And our lives should be seen through the prism of those three marriages, that marriage to Jesus, marriage to a family, and marriage to a church. You know, when you think about uh, God's relationship with the church, it is covenantal. It's not a contract, it's covenantal. He is saying, I have married you. You're gonna be my bride. That's covenantal language. And in the same way, God is asking us in our relationship with the church to be covenantal. For us to, to walk into the church and marry a local church somewhere. If it's not this one, let's find the one that it would be. But he's calling us all to have that marriage firm and solidified in our life. So we talked about church membership last week. And today I want to take another step. And let me start out today by reading a quote from Jonathan Edwards. It's, it's something he had to say about godly leaders. Here's what he said. Useful men 
are some of the greatest blessings to a people. Useful men are some of the greatest blessings to a people. To have many such men or pastors is more for a people's happiness than almost anything else. They are a precious gift from heaven. And I I think he is really summarizing in a lot of ways what the Bible affirms. You know, it, it doesn't take long in reading the Old Testament to see that the old axiom proves true. As the leaders go, so go the people. As the leaders of God's people go, so, so go the people of God. You see that over and over throughout the Old Testament. Then you get into the New Testament and you see something very similar. As the leaders of the New Testament church go, so goes the New Testament church. It, you see that play itself out all throughout the scriptures. So this morning, I want to take a, a whole morning, a whole sermon, and address the topic of church leadership, of those God has called and entrusted with something so precious as his bride. Now, as you're hearing this, I want to just maybe describe what I think might be a good posture to hear this from and, and through. I think it would be helpful if you just took on the posture of, God, would you allow this particular passage in 1 Peter 5 and this particular sermon to begin to shape and inform the way I'm praying for our church leaders? for our elders and pastors of our church. Just take it as a way of of informing, God, this is is the way that you would want me to be praying for them. These are the things that I need to exhort them toward, that I need to pray that you would be doing in their lives. So just even now, I think it would be good to have that posture of, okay, as as he's preaching through this, as I'm reading through this passage, I'm just gonna be turning all of these little moments, all these little points, all these little phrases in this passage, I'm gonna turn them right back into prayer to God. So this passage starts like this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Peter says, so I exhort the elders among you. I exhort the elders among you. Now that kind of just poses our first question that we need to ask of this passage. What in the world are elders? What, what are elders? So let me start with a, kind of a working definition. As you're thinking about what elders are or what pastors are in the context of a church, um, how you can think about that. And you might think of it this way. Elders are the group of rescued, qualified, and competent men who God has charged to shepherd the local church. Now, I think this is a really helpful just distinction and, and you know, as you're thinking about the categories of how the Bible talks about church leaders to, to know this. There's basically three words the Bible uses to talk about church leaders. There's the word elder, there's the word overseer, and there's the word pastor. So those three words are all used in the Bible. And those aren't describing three different people. All of those words are used interchangeably to describe the the same people. So depending on the tradition that you might have come from, you might have grown up in churches where you called your your leaders elders, or you might have grown up calling them pastors, you might have grown up calling them overseers or bishops, but all of those are biblically correct language. All of those are, are language in the Bible used to describe the exact same group of people. So now let me just take the definition that's that's on the screen. And uh, let me pull out three different parts. As we're trying to answer the question, what are elders? Let me pull out three kind of pieces of that definition that I want to bring clarity to. First of all, that definition is showing that they're shepherds. 
elders are shepherds. That's what the word pastor means. Pastor equals shepherds. So, so elders are shepherds. You can see it in verse 2. Uh, Peter says, shepherd the flock of God. He's describing what an elder is and what an elder does. Shepherd the, the flock of God. Now, I think just using the language of shepherd to describe church leaders is important because the prevailing sort of metaphors that our culture uses to describe church leaders is not shepherd. It, it's more like probably CEO or king, that those would be kind of the prevailing metaphors in our culture to describe church leadership. But that's not the, the biblical metaphor. The biblical metaphor is one of shepherd. And I think we would do a really wise thing for our church to keep that imagery and that metaphor alive and present. Elders are shepherds. Now notice uh, verse two. I just want to point out one quick thing here. In verse two, it says, shepherd, it doesn't say this, your flock. That's not what it says. It says, shepherd the flock of God. Now, that's, that is a massively important thing for all of us to come to grips with. In, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the head of the church. In Hebrews 3, 1, it says that Jesus is the apostle who plants the church. In Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus is the leader who builds the church. In 1 Peter 5, 4, Jesus is the senior pastor or chief shepherd who cares for and protects the church. And, and all of those things are saying exactly what this little phrase, the flock of God, is saying. The church is God's. It's his flock. The church is God's bride. Jesus is the chief, chief shepherd of the flock. He is, he is the husband, the, the eternal husband of the bride, uh, you know, of the church. But at the same time, God looks at people, at certain men, and calls and equips and entrusts these imperfect people to, to be under shepherds of his flock. These imperfect people, their pastors are just people. To, to hold something so precious as his bride to lead and, and to nurture and to help that bride flourish. So Jesus, yes, he is the chief shepherd. He is the owner of the church. It's his church. It's his flock. And at the same time, he calls under shepherds to help care for, lead, and protect his flock. So pastors or elders are shepherds. Secondly, they're in plurality. They're in plurality. When you read the New Testament, here's the pattern you're going to see throughout the New Testament when it's talking about churches, that there are a plurality of leaders in that church, a plurality of pastors or a plurality of elders. Now, that pattern is set for two reasons. It's a safeguard for both the church and for the pastors. It provides safety for everyone when you have a plurality of leaders. Now, let me just show you a few examples of this in the Bible. And I want you to notice as I read through these texts, they're going to be up on the screen for you, that you're going to see elders are plural and the church is singular. So you have a plurality of elders in this singular church. Watch how this works. Acts chapter 14, verse 23. This is just a sampling of passages to show this. And when they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, singular, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Acts 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders, plural, of the church in Ephesus, singular, to come to him. 1 Peter 5, 17, let the elders, that's plural, who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor. James 5, 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders, plural, of the church, singular, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Philippians 1, 1. 
Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So singular church in Philippi. And then it says this, with the overseers. There's our, that, that word, elder, overseer, pastor. Overseers, plural, and deacons. So let me just try to walk out practically what this would mean for us as the church family. Our leadership table doesn't look like, or our kind of leadership structure doesn't look like a pyramid with one person at the top of the pyramid. That's not what we look like. Our leadership structure looks like a round table with a group of elders or pastors who all share an equal amount of authority. That's what it means to have a plurality of elders. So elders shepherd, they're in plurality. And thirdly, from our definition, elders are qualified. Elders are qualified. Now, if you want to go ahead and flip back into 1 Timothy chapter 3, just flip back a few uh, books in your New Testament to 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's also going to be on the screen for you, but if you want to see it in your own Bible, 1 Timothy 3. I'm gonna, I just want to read through seven verses that talk about the qualifications for the role of pastor or elder. And as you're flipping there, let's just all admit together, it, it is good for people to be qualified for things, isn't it? Uh, Laura and I, in the early years of our marriage, we had just kind of a freak moment happen where we got to go to Europe for a few days. And I'm pretty sure that I just left one thing in Europe, in Switzerland, as a matter of fact. And it was my appendix. It's a great way to just absolutely ruin a vacation. <laughs> and so, uh, but wouldn't you agree if you're in that moment of somebody is looking at you and they're saying, I'm about to take this knife and I'm about to open you up and I'm about to start removing organs. This is what's about to go down. Aren't we all in agreement? You want that person to be more than a good old boy, Right? I mean, you want them to have a little more experience than di you know, dissecting the, the, the pig in their ninth grade science class. I mean, you want them to have a little, some training, some qualifications to make sure they get the right organ, they cut in the right place. All those things are very important to you in that moment. Now, that's even more true when it comes to pastors. And in this passage in 1 Timothy 3, Paul lays out the qualifications of pastors when he says this. He says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseers, he desires a noble task. Let me just point out two things in verse one. Paul says, here's one qualification that a person needs to have. There needs to be an aspiration. Like there needs to be something in this person that says, I want to do that. Like, like the Lord has planted in me desires for that sort of a thing. So there needs to be an aspiration. And then secondly, he, uh, Paul says in the last phrase, he desires a noble task. He desires a noble task. So in describing elders, that is the reason that we have said it is a group of men. That This passage and others are showing that this is the one role inside of the church that is reserved for men only. Every other role within the church is open to women. We want to see women flourish in all of their giftings in our church family. But Paul is saying this is the one role that is reserved for, for men alone. Now, let me, we could spend our whole morning here, but let me just say a couple of things by way of a primer on this. In the church, what you're seeing is that the pattern for the home extends out of the home and also applies to the church. So maybe you could think of it this way. God's design of headship helper which you find in the home between husband and wife, that headship helper dance in the home is directly reflected in the head helper relationship between pastors and people in the church. That, that same relationship is reflected in, in how God has laid out roles and responsibilities within a church. And just like a husband in the house and in the home should provide 
a covering for their, uh, you know, over their home that should allow everyone in that home to flourish and become everything God would have them be. So should the male elders in a church provide a covering from that church that would allow everyone in the church, both men and women, to grow and flourish into everything that God would have them be. So the pattern in the home is reflected in the church. And secondly, you know, back in the first Peter passage, Peter starts this section on eldership by saying so or therefore. So that means it's connected back into first Peter chapter four, talking about suffering. That the, the conversation on eldership, first Peter five, is connected to suffering in first Peter chapter four. And that connection is purposeful. When the church is persecuted, when, when, when people start dying in the church because they love Jesus and are living for Jesus, when that happens, pastors are designed by God to be the first people on the front line to begin to suffer. God has called pastors to, to lead in that sort of a way. So there is a sense in which God has called pastors to be the last one out of a burning building and the last one off the sinking ship. If I take that and plant that in the context of my home, if someone breaks into my home, if a burglar breaks into my home tonight, I am not sending Laura out of our bedroom to go confront the burglar at the front door while I go intercede in the prayer closet. <laughs> that is not the way it's going down, is it? That should not be the way. And in the same way, in the church, that should not be the way it goes down. The pastor should be the first one in the church to, to bleed for the people, to be bruised for, and even die for the sake of the people in the church. The pastor should be the first ones for all of that. Now, if you've got any more questions on just, I mean, that is a whole massively big topic in our culture in today's day and age. If you've got any other questions on that, feel free to email any question you want. Uh, to my email address. It's Jimmy Needham at stonegate.church. So just feel free to, <laughs> I'm joking. You can ask any question that you'd like there. Verse two, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. Now that's a junk drawer sort of category, isn't it? Above reproach. It's saying that there can't be any massive moral defect there. That this guy should not be on the front end of their sanctification, but these men should be down the road. There should be an element of maturity in their Christian life. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Now, those five words have had so much ink spilled over them throughout the history of the church. I think if you just boil that down, what it's saying is they should be a one-woman man. They should be faithful to their bride. They should love their wives. They should be laying their life down for the sake of their wife. They should be providing a covering over their wife where their wife is becoming everything that God would have them be, the husband of one wife. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. I think you could sum up all three of those by saying, you know, when you hear that guy's name, that, that guy associated with eldership or pastoring in a church, you don't think, that guy? Have, have, have y'all lost y'all's mind? That's not what you think. You, you, when you hear that person's name, you think, yeah, that, that would make so much sense for that guy to be in that sort of a role. So sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. So his life is open to people, especially those who um, aren't yet Christians, don't know Jesus yet. They should be hospitable. They should be able to teach. Now, I don't think that means that every elder should be able to come up and do just a killer 40-minute sort of monologue sermon moment. I don't think that's what it means. But I do think an elder needs to be able to navigate his Bible well. A pastor should be able to know the scriptures. They should be able to apply the gospel to the wounds of people. That they should know their Bible and be helpful with people with, with their Bible. So they should be able to teach. They should not be a drunkard. I think that could just generally apply to all addictions. There should be no major addictions in their life. Not a drunkard. Not violent. So their anger should be under control. 
right? So they're not trying to get into the octagon with every person that crosses them, right? That's, that's not their, their way of operating, but they're gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So the home is obviously the primary place of testing for a pastor or an elder. Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So eldership is not the place that you're proving your potential. It is a place where pe- for people who've already proven their potential, right? It's not, not for a recent convert. Verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let me just make th- uh, three or four observations about those qualifications. First, I think it's important to just see the, qu- the qualification is not an elder is Jesus, It's not an elder is perfect. That's not there. Pastors are people. And they're going to disappoint. They're going, I'm going to fail you in a million different ways. All of our elders and pastors are going to fail you repeatedly around here. So it's not perfection. I think there is a sense in which we're pace setters. We're trying to get out in front and be pace setters in our walk with the Lord. But I just, I want to make sure that we're all seeing that and just knowing that elders are not described as perfect people. They're going to constantly disappoint you, especially if you put too much hope in them. Secondly, um, when you're looking at those qualifications, um, those qualifications describe Christian maturity. I think Paul's assumption underneath these qualifications is Really good Christians make really good pastors. I think that's the, kind of the logic that he's using here. And, uh, and I think in that way, every one of us should be able to look at those qualifications and almost as a grid for us to say, okay, wh- what would I want to grow in as I'm striving for Christ's likeliness in my life? Let me just pick one and let's spend 30 days co-laboring with Jesus the next month to say, man, I, I want to make progress in this area. I want to see my life move forward in this area by God's grace, leaning on God and enjoying God. God, would you please grow more fruit in this particular area? So it's, it's just describing Christian mature, maturity generally. Another observation is that these qualifications are tied less to a person's work in the church and more to a person's work in the home. So the ability of a pastor to, 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 you know, to pastor inside of a church is really determined by and proved by and tested by his ability and willingness to pastor in the context of his home. Now, I would hope for any man listening to that, there would be just a gentle nudging of the Lord when you hear that to say, God, what would it look like for me to grow as a shepherd in my home? God, God I want to be a faithful shepherd, a faithful pastor in my home that, to help see the people in my home flourish and become everything that you would want them to be? What would be a next step I could take? God, would you please show me that? And fourthly, one other observation is that these, these qualifications deal with character primarily, and character just takes a long time to test. This is why, you know, Paul says in the New Testament, don't be hasty of laying on of hands. Don't be hasty in, in putting people into that role. There is something worse than having, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of elders. That's having the wrong ones, right? So, so Paul is just making sure that you deal with character, that you're slow in doing these sorts of things. So let me just take a moment to describe some of our history with eldership in our church family. So when we planted, I was the lone elder. And so to, to help still have a plurality, we had a group of external people that were functioning as external elders to give us the plurality that we didn't have internally. And then about three years in, we installed as elders uh, Travis Wyckoff and Dave Hansen. 
And those men have labored so faithfully for our church, bled for our church, wept over our church, served our church in so many wonderful ways. Several years after that, we installed uh, Debbie and Valentine and, and Kevin Hill. So that got us up to a total of five elders when we installed those two guys. And they have done such a good job of laboring for and sweating over and pleading with God for and weeping over our church family. Now, over the last couple of years, or last roughly year, we have sent Valentine to Cedar Hill to plant a church. And, uh, and we have sent Travis up into central Arlington. He's working with Mission Arlington, trying to plant churches in a bunch of apartment complexes in downtown uh, Arlington. And so uh, we are back down to three elders. And I want to just go ahead and put their, uh, their faces on the screen for you. So it would be me along with these two guys, uh, Dave Hansen and Kevin Hill. I just want you to see their faces so you would know them and know who those people are. And I just want to ask you to pray for us. That just part of your rhythms in your prayer life would be to take those elders in your church and just to intercede for them, to pray that God would keep their hearts soft to pray that that God would speak to them, they would be open to the Lord. So I just wanna encourage you to pray for the elders here. And and one other thing that I hope is very obvious when you think about our church family is with three elders and roughly 900 people that go to Stonegate, we are in need of more elders in our church family. So pray that God would give us more elders, additional elders in our church family who, who could help shepherd and pastor and care for our people. And I want to say just a couple of things to, to the men in our church. I am praying that God would more and more put that aspiration into more hearts across our church family to want to shepherd and, and lead and help serve our church family in those sorts of ways. And as that happens, I want, to just, I want to encourage you to do two things as that goes down. If that aspiration forms and begins to percolate in you, one is that you would let us know that, that that aspiration is there. So I just want to invite any of our men in our church that feel that to just repeatedly let us know that you sense that and feel that internally. And the second thing is, uh, you know, in Acts 20, 28, this has been one of the most helpful things for me to see in the Bible in regards to eldership. In Acts 20, verse 28, it says that the Holy Spirit makes you an overseer. And I want to just lay out how that making typically happens. Here's, here's the ingredients that goes into the Holy Spirit making a person an overseer. First, there is an aspiration. The Holy Spirit gives that sense of, I want to do that. That feels good to me. That, that feels like something God might be calling me toward. So that's ingredient number one. Ingredient number two is along with that aspiration, there is an opening of your eyes to see the needs in the people around you. So aspiration, your eyes become open to all these needs around you. And then the third thing happens, the next ingredient happens. You actually begin to step into many of those needs and you begin to bear the burdens of other people. That's the third thing that happens. Now, over time, here's what happened. You know, when a church installs elder, they're really not making an elder in that moment. They're recognizing what the Spirit has done to that person. And over time, as you're, you feel that aspiration and, and you're seeing those needs and you're stepping into those needs, a church begins to say, man, it does seem like God has like put that aspiration in them. And they're actually bearing burdens in our church. Like my burden, like that person has, has borne my burden and they have been helpful as they've done that. And then a church begins to look at them and say, that, that's what an elder is. That's what an elder does in a, in a church family. And then a church gets to equip that person and then install that person and recognize that person for what the Holy Spirit is doing. So if that's you, if that aspiration is forming, let us know. 
And then open your eyes to people around you and ask God the question, God, will you help me endure and bear the burdens of those people? God, would you, would you help me be helpful and effective as I step into those sort of roles um, in people's lives? So if, if that's you, I just want to encourage you in, in those two ways. Let us know and then begin to bear those sort of burdens. And we would love to see the Lord give us an additional crew of elders and our church family. So that is what are elders. Question number two now. What do elders do? What do elders do? And we're going to go through this one fairly quickly. But, Paul, but Peter is helpful here. He, he gives us the imagery we need to answer the question. And he gives us the imagery when he says, shepherd the flock. That's what you're to do as an elder, shepherd the flock. Now think about what, how a shepherd would, would go about shepherding his flock. I think you could just boil it down into three broad categories. And this is what makes up the role of an elder or a pastor. Shepherds lead the sheep. That's one thing a shepherd has to do. So if you can imagine a shepherd, they are responsible for the direction of their flock to make sure the flock's in the right place at the right time. They, they have both like a short-term view of where their flock needs to be and how they're going to get there and a long-term view of where their flock is and how they're going to get there. In the same way, pastors are responsible for leading their flock. You see it in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And then here's the next two words. Exercising oversight. That, that is a leading the flock sort of responsibility that shepherds have or that pastors have. They have to hear from God, getting a sense of where it is that God would have the flock go and then do everything they can to gently lead the flock in that direction. So these sort of things would include things like keeping the church on mission, setting priorities inside of a church, casting vision, wisely stewarding resources. All of those sort of things go into shepherds leading the sheep. And can I just ask you to pray for our elders in that way? Apart from divine Holy Spirit sort of help, we will fail in that every time. So would you just, would you pray for our elders that we would hear from God well, sense what God is wanting from us, leading gently in those sort of directions. Shepherds lead the sheep. Secondly, if you think about what a shepherd does, they feed the sheep. You would be a bad shepherd if all of your sheep starved to death, Right? So a shepherd has to make sure he's getting the flock into green pastures where they can be well-fed and nourished. And in the same way, pastors are called to feed their people in the green pastures of God's word. This is, what, this is one of the roles that pastors have. And, you know, when you're thinking about feeding the sheep, this is that preaching and teaching component of pastoring. It's, it's what 1 Timothy 5 calls the labor of a pastor. Uh, one of my friends, he, he says it this way. Um, he's a pastor friend of mine. He says... <laughs> This imagery is kind of weird, but it's, it's spot on all at the same time. He says, I give birth to a sermon every Sunday, and I wake, every, uh, wake up every Monday morning again pregnant. I mean, that, that, that's the, the life and kind of the, the, you know, the job of a pastor. And it was funny, one person after the first service said, dude, I do not want your job then. I'm out on that. But that's so it. It's like every Sunday you're giving birth to a sermon that takes so much work and just help from the Lord to get out. And then every Monday you're right back at it to get back to the next Sunday. So it's that, that, that feeding, that teaching component of a pastor, that teaching, preaching, applying the gospel to the lives of people. And can I just ask you, would you pray for our elders in that sort of a way? that God would continue to speak to us in ways that would be helpful, that then we can then get the Bible out to you in helpful ways. Shepherds feed the sheep. And, and thirdly, shepherds care for and protect the sheep. 
A shepherd, think about what a shepherd does. They have to fend off wolves for their flock. They have to tend and care for sick and wounded sheep. And in the same way, this is what pastors do. They have to make sure that they are defending against wolves. Acts 20 verse 28 tells us that wolves are bound to come in and try to kill the sheep, to try to kill a flock. And part of what pastors do is make sure they are seeing that. And this is just where would you please pray for discernment for, for your pastors and elders? I mean, think about what, what a pastor has to see. They have to see the difference between a weak and immature sheep and a wolf. And sometimes those two can look very similar. But a weak and immature sheep needs someone to patiently walk beside them. A wolf needs someone to shoot them. Right? That's two very different responses to those two things. If you feed and nourish a wolf, they kill more sheep right? But if you kill a, a, a sheep over here, that would be the exact opposite thing you're wanting to do as a pastor. So pray that God would give us supernatural discernment to see those sorts of things. So pastors have to, to protect from wolves, and at the same time, they have to tend to and care for many sheep who have been wounded by wolves and, and by just life in a fallen world, who feel so beat up and hurt so, so pray that your pastors have the ability to do that. Now, when you're thinking about the role of, of an elder, what do elders do? It's all of those three things. If an elder just preaches well, he may be a great preacher and still be a bad pastor. If, if an elder can care for people well, but that's all he does, he may be a great caregiver, but he's still going to be a bad pastor. And, and if all a, you know, an elder does is he leads, and he's a killer leader. He does such a great job, but that's all he does. He may be a great CEO, but he's not a great pastor. A pastor is doing all three of those things. They're leading, they're feeding, and they're caring for and protecting the flock. Pray for your leaders in that way. Pray that God would help us do that in a way that would serve you and be helpful for you. Third question, how do elders do it? How do elders do the, the leading, the feeding, the caring for and protecting? Peter is so helpful here in giving direction to that. Peter doesn't just say, shepherd the flock. He says, shepherd the flock. And then he says, and this is the way you do that. Here are some things you need to, to stay away from. Here are some things you need to lean into. This is the way you go about carrying out your job as a shepherd. And look at what he says in verse 2. There's three of them here. He says, not under compulsion, but willingly. Peter's saying, pastoring or eldering is not a career, it's a calling. And you can't do this calling out of compulsion. You cannot pastor out of compulsion. You cannot last in ministry if you're somehow externally motivated. God has to put something in you where you wake up with an eager willingness to do this. And if God hasn't done that, there's no way you're going to last. Calling is absolutely necessary. I, I think this is why the first qualification you see in 1 Peter 3 is aspiration. I, something deep in me is saying, I want to do that. And, and it's important that we make sure that we're aspiring to the right thing. Because I think a lot of people aspire to pastor for the wrong reasons, and they just have the wrong imagery in mind. I think a lot of people, when they think pastoring, they think it's, it's akin to being the wide receiver. There, there's three seconds left when the, when the you know, the the ball snapped, and he streaks down the sideline. He's on a fly route. The quarterback throws him the ball, but the time is now out. He dives in the end zone. He hauls it in for the winning TD catch. The crowd goes wild. Everybody loves him. I think that's what most people aspire to when they think about pastoring. But it's just amazing to me how that's not Paul's imagery for a pastor. In Philippians 1, Paul's imagery is this. You're going to be a bondservant. In other words, you're going to be a person who willingly receives chains who suffers loss, who receives bruises, 
so that your flock can flourish and become everything that God would want them to be. Um, one of my friends, when he was uh, trying to figure out if it was like a bad burrito, God, him, who was it that he was feeling a nudge towards church planting, he asked uh, just an older pastor in his life about that. And the older pastor said this, you need to lock yourself in a closet and not come out until you're sure it's God. And here's why. He said, if you do it and you shouldn't do it, ministry's gonna kill you. If you don't do it and you should, God's gonna kill you. And if you do it and you should, Satan will give his last breath to try to kill you. It was interesting. This last week, I was at a ministerial alliance here in town. We've got an older gentleman that's, that's pastored for 30 or 35 years that uh, he's retired now. And he just loves to come in and hang with the pastors in the area and pray for us. And he finished by praying on Wednesday afternoon. But before he prayed, one of the things he said is, um, one, and I haven't verified this, anecdotal evidence for me, I think it's probably not far off. But, but he said this, one in 20 pastors make it 25 years in ministry. One in 20. And I do know this fact, or this uh, statistic is true. Uh, 50% of pastors don't last five years. And I know this is true, that there was an extensive survey done of pastors. And in that survey, 50% of pastors were so discouraged in their job that if they had another way to provide for their family, they would take it. Now, none of our pastors are there. That's not where we are. But in any given year, we could be. And so I just want to encourage you to pray for your pastors Pray that God would wake them up, and, and when they wake up, they would have this feeling. I can't believe God has asked me to do this. I can't believe it. I can't believe I get to do this. Pray that your pastors would feel that deep down from God, that, that we would love that God has called us into this. Because Peter is showing us you can't do it under compulsion. It's got to be willingly. Secondly, he says in verse 2, it can't be for shameful gain, for shameful gain but, but eagerly. Now, when you think about just condensing the whole Bible, the Bible is clear that pastors should be paid for, for their labor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, according to 1 Timothy 5. But Peter is dealing with the other side of the coin, and Peter is raising the, the warning here, and he is saying this, it is sin for a pastor to be motivated by money. And I think that alarm needs to be sounded in our day when so many pastors are using their people for their own profit. You know, I think that there's two ways that a pastor can relate to, to the people that God's entrusted to him. One is like this. I'm going to use you to build my empire. That's one way a pastor can relate to people. And that would be sinful when a pastor does that. And here's the other way. A pastor can, can look at his people and say, I'm going to lay down rights to my life. I'm going to suffer loss. I, I'm going to be a bondservant. I'm going to willingly receive chains so that you can flourish and so that the kingdom of God can move forward. And do you know the only way a pastor stays in that place is by a work of the Holy Spirit? So pray for your pastors. Pray that God would keep their hearts right there. And then in verse 3, he says, not domineering. That's not the way pastors are meant to lead, but by being examples. Now, and I think this in some ways poses the tension of leadership in a church. And the tension goes like this. On one side, we are charged to, to lead. Since from God, like where God would want our church to go and then help our church get there. And at the same time, the tension is that can't be done in a domineering way that is bullying and manipulating to get people to go there. That, that is the tension of leadership. And this is why 
Peter is saying, you, you've got to be examples. You've got to be out in front of your people, n- not beating them with a the whip from behind, but out in front, pleading with God and pleading with them to come along where God would have us go. So pray that our elders would be like that. They would be people, that not, not domineering people, but we would be people out in front, leading fr- you know, uh, fr- in the front, pace setting for our church family, all the while sensing from God and calling you in to where God would have us go. Pray that God would keep our hearts there. Pray that God would keep our hearts in a humble place where that would be true of us. And I want to just say this as explicitly as I can in light of the not domineering but being examples. I want you to know that there is never a question you would ever ask us that's off limits. There's no question you need to be fearful about. We want to provide a safe context for everyone in our church to know we value you we value your questions. You're, you're an integral part of this church, and you can ask anything you want, anytime you want, of any of our pastors or elders. That that is fair game. We want to do everything we can to be examples and not domineering. And then here's the fourth question, and it's answered in verse four. Why do elders do it? Why do elders do it? God has used two things in my life to force this sort of a question up out of my heart and like out of my mouth. And the question is, why in the world do I keep doing this? What, what? It, it just, it hurts so bad sometimes. Like, why do I keep, why do I keep putting myself in this place where life can just be so hard and it feels like losses are everywhere and it, why do I keep doing that? Now, I don't know if you've ever, like, those sort of questions have come out of your mouth as you're trying to be faithful and obedient to the Lord. But, but the two things that God has used to do that more than any other has been fostering and pastoring. Those two things. That those are the two things that God has used to force those sort of questions. And verse four for me has become an anchor to, the, to, to my soul in those sort of moments. Like, why, why would I keep doing that? Why would I keep putting myself in positions where, where you're wounded and you get hurt and all those sort of things are happening? Here, here's why. Verse four. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Here's why. Because one day, Jesus, the chief shepherd, is coming back. And when he comes back, glory is coming with him. And when he comes back, he is going to be ready to commend and reward his people. And on that day, he's going to make up for every loss. On that day, he is going to fully heal every wound. On that day, he's going to reward every sacrifice. And listen, this is not just for pastors. This is for all of God's people. For, for those feeling lost, for, for those who feel hurt as you're on the road of following and being faithful to Jesus, this is his promise to you, that there is going to be a day coming where you're going to receive the unfading crown of glory, that, that God is going to bring with him when he comes back for his bride, the church, a glory that is so big and so bright that it's going to make your worst wounds, your darkest sufferings seem so, so small. That, that is what is coming in the return of our chief shepherd, Jesus. Now, I want to close just by reading verse 5. Verse 5. 
Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. That's church membership played out right there. We covered that last week. Clothe yourselves, church, pastors, and people. This is, this is an all call. Everyone who makes up the church, clothe yourself. Put, put on as clothing. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. A healthy church has faithful pastors who are leading and caring and protecting and feeding the flock. And a healthy church has faithful people who are joyfully and willingly submitting to the authority in their pastors that God has put over them. And do you know the only thing that makes that possible? Do you know what that is? Humility. Apart from humility, pastors are domineering and bullying. Apart from humility, followers rebel and make it impossible for their leaders. I mean, there's a reason John Stott says at every stage of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. But why do so many churches split and why are so many scarred with bitter divisions and strife? It's one word, pride, pride. And when pastors or people or the collective bunch of pastors and people are so full of pride, what does this text tell us God does? He opposes the church. And and if we're prideful long enough, God begins to, to actively oppose us to the point where he shuts down our church to raise up a humble church in its place. If you want a sure recipe for the death of our church, here it is. Let's be prideful. Pastors, be prideful. People, be prideful. That's the sure recipe. But when you're humble, when we're humble, when pastors are humble, when the people of a church are humble, what does God do according to 1 Peter 5, 5? Pour out grace upon grace upon grace. And Stonegate, may that be our story. May may that be our story. May God raise up godly, self-sacrificing, qualified, humble men to shepherd our church. And may God plant in our church family a deep heart of humility. And may together between pastor and people, may we experience grace upon grace upon grace. Amen. Why don't you bow with me? I want to give you a second to allow the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be helpful, to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. This text tells us that the chief shepherd is one day going to appear. I wonder if you're ready to meet Jesus. I wonder, I wonder if you're ready for that moment. The Bible says there's only one way to be ready. And that is looking at the perfect work of Jesus. He lived perfectly in our place, died on the cross, receiving God's punishment for our sin in our place rose from the dead on the third day, showing God's power over Satan, sin, and death, so that now all of those who will turn from their sin 
and throw their life upon Jesus would be rescued by God, saved from the judgment of God, ready one day to stand before God, brought into the family of God and called his very own. And I just wonder if, if that's you. If you're ready for that moment, if there's been this moment where you've held up your life to God and said, I'm trusting Jesus, here's my life, rescue me, save me. And for every follower of Jesus, glory is going to come with Jesus in that moment. Glory is so big and bright, it's going to make up for every loss. It's going to make all of our present suffering seem so small. Oh, that God would give us an anticipation for that day, a hope for that day. May, may that cause us to be a church who clothes ourselves in humility. So, oh God, would you help us? It's in your good name we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.